Good evening, good evening, good evening, good evening, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues. I am your host tonight, Shantae Charles. I hope that you have been having a great and wonderful day. It is Relationship Wednesday, and we have made it to episode 25. So, every 25 episodes, we talk, we stop and we take a break. Um, so, I will be back on Facebook on Black Table Talk next Tuesday. So, I will be breaking until uh, Tuesday of next week. And our return will be on the Black Tabletop page on Facebook. So please make sure you find us there and like the page and follow. So tonight's gift is from one of my favorite characters. It is the Peanuts Gang. And this is going to be going to Benjamin Lockett. It is a uh, 2XL. And so it has plenty of room. And it's a a, a soft material, a little bit stretchable. So I hope that you will enjoy this and you can either gift it or keep it. Either one. So tonight we are jumping into our relationship topic. And tonight we are back in the book, Why Smart People Hurt. A guide for the bright, the sensitive, and the creative. As well as hopping into chapter one of what happened to you. What happened to you? We finished the introduction. This is by Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey are co-writing this book together. And we finished up the introduction and now we're headed into uh, chapter one. And so I am excited about that. I am reading ahead. I'm in chapter five. But this is a really, really good book on trauma, resilience, and healing. So I do highly recommend it if you are working through your own trauma, if you are trying to be a better parent, um, and to understand some things that can cause trauma in early childhood that you don't want to do to your children. Um, So if you want to parent differently than what you were raised, I highly recommend this book. Again, it's What Happened to You by Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey and Why Smart People Hurt by Eric Mizell or Maisel. These are the two books that we're jumping into. Uh, we do have some extra time tonight. I'm excited. <laughs> uh, I don't have to jump off at 645. So we do have some extra time tonight to really dig in into these two topics. So let us get started. Why smart people hurt. We are in chapter one. Smartness has been disparaged. And we've been talking about how intellectuals are not really necessarily loved in popular culture. Uh, I think we saw a good example of that with Dave Chappelle recently, who for all of his joke telling, he's more, as someone said, he's more of a um, national griot. He tells stories in a very humorous way to make you think and, and come to some critical thinking, right? Now, I don't necessarily agree with all the views of Dave Chappelle, but we do know that he is a genius. He is an intellectual. He is someone 
who is known for his mind. And that doesn't always get you applause when you require or when you're asking people to think critically about their actions. So as we dive in tonight, we're going to continue that um, idea and thought. Tyrants, writes Eric Mizell, tyrants hate intellectuals, for intellectuals as a class see tyranny for what it is and can articulate what they see. That's powerful. If you've got a pen somewhere, you've got your text available, type that down. Tyrants hate intellectuals, for intellectuals as a class see tyranny for what it is and can articulate what they see. They know when freedom is being violated and stolen. They are better attuned to knowing what they are being, when they are being fed lies. They recognize to what extent the majority opinion is an anti-intellectual one. Therefore, they don't roll with the majority when they realize that the majority is operating and following something out of ignorance. That was my thought. They recognize to what extent the majority opinion is an anti-intellectual one. Attacks on thinking and attacks on smart people occur all the time. Here is one report from contemporary Iraq as reported by the watchdog group of face and a name, civilian victims of insurgent groups in Iraq. Some Iraqi academics see the current attacks as a way to destroy Iraq's intellectual elite. Precise figures are difficult to obtain, but studies suggest that doctors and academics are particularly at risk. A study by the Iraqi Ministry of Health concluded that armed groups have abducted between 160 and 300 Iraqi doctors since April 2003 and killed more than 25. Um, for those of you who have been listening to us on our Sunday Dialogue podcast, um, we've been talking about this notion of when someone is brought into captivity, that the person who is trying to bring others into captivity they don't go looking for people who don't have intellect. They're looking for the chiefs. They're looking for the most beautiful. They're looking for the prince's children. They're looking for the king's children. They're looking for the intellectuals. This is historic. This his. I mean, this is historical, right? So now we're seeing it again, happening in Iraq. They are taking the doctors and the academics. Think about that. Nearly 1,000 doctors have fled the country, the study said, with an average of 30 more following each month. To stem the outflow, the ministry broadcast a public service announcement on television in spring 2005 with a message that said, Dear citizens, Please do not kill doctors. You may need them one day. No kidding. Professors at Iraq's once prestigious universities are also under attack. According to an April 2005 United Nations University report, assassins have killed 48 academics since 2003 and many more teachers and professors brave daily threats. Yes, teachers, professors, doctors, academics, 
people who are nation builders and history and cultural preservers are under attack and they face attack regardless of what nation they're in. They're just reporting on Iraq. Hundreds of academics and professionals have been threatened with death and told to leave Iraq. According to the Association of University Teachers, 2,000 professors have left Iraq since 2003, joining the 10,000 professors the association says left the country in the 12 years after the Gulf War. So when I see study abroad programs and teachers need it, and come live over here for free, and we'll pay for your plane ticket, I pause before I show interest because the reality is if their own academics and professors are fleeing the country, what makes you think you're going to fare better as a U.S. foreigner trying to go over there and provide education? Just something to think about for all of these study abroad programs. All right. Making sure that you're not leading people from other countries into a very dangerous situation to quote unquote, teach abroad. Attacks on people who can think occur in every culture and in every epoch. Rebellious feminists in Russia are labeled with mental disorders made up on the spot for the purposes of incarcerating them. Scientists who point out the environmental dangers caused by businesses are ridiculed as fear mongers. Every age and every culture has its versions of cultural revolutions, inquisitions, and scopes trials. It is impossible for a child who is born smart to have any inkling that her abilities are likely to be disparaged, that thinking itself will be envied and hated by some in her society, or that she may be targeted by her government because she is chosen thinking or chosen a thinking profession. What smart child building with blocks or surfing the net could possibly suspect how unfriendly her species is to thinking and to the fruits of thinking like science, culture, and freedom? Such a notion would make no sense to her. Yet those are the abiding truths about our species that perennially contribute to the distress that smart people experience. So, a couple of questions for you. Was your smartness disparaged as you were growing up? You can feel free to comment in the comment section. What messages did you receive about your capabilities and talents? What messages did you receive about whether it was admirable or unseemly to be smart? If you were receiving mixed messages about your smartness, what was the bottom line or ultimate message? And given that those messages and that upbringing influence your formed personality, what do you need to do now to recover your rightful smartness? So I'm going to spend a little time answering all five of these and then I'm going to move to the next book. I can't give you all my history (laughs) on smartness, but I'll just answer them these questions very briefly. So starting with question number one. As I was growing up, smartness in my family was never disparaged. And I'm very thankful for that. Um, Smartness was actually honored. It was revered. Um, If you were considered a smart child, you weren't treated better than other children. But your gifts and talents and skills were nurtured. And I grew up in the hood. So 
in my household, growing up in the hood, (laughs) being smart, I am very thankful that my family gave me a very strong foundation in terms of accepting my smartness, accepting myself, and not downplaying that part of myself and actually encouraging me to um, really hone in on my skills and my talents and my gifts. So on that note, I will definitely give my family a thumbs up. Um, Now, did I experience what today we would call child abuse? Was I beat? Yes, I was. (laughs) So on the one hand, smartness was encouraged. But also in that, sometimes I was too smart for my own good in certain situations. Um, I remember when I got tested, uh, my parent, my mom did the IQ test on for me when I was four, I think, four years old, because she was trying to get me into an early entrance program, which a lot of states don't do anymore, but it's where you allow the, the child to enter kindergarten at an early age. I entered at four years old. So I was like, today I would be two or three years ahead of most children because most, again, most states don't do that anymore. So in order to do that, in order to enter at four, I had to take an early entrance test, which was part of it was an IQ test. And I remember my mom getting the score and and reading it. And I remember looking up up at her and saying, what did I get? (laughs) And she just looked at me kind of like, none of your business. (laughs) And I remember what she said to me in that moment. She looked at the paper and then she looked at me and she said, let's just say you have the ability to save the world or blow it up. The choice is really up to you, but you have the ability to either save the world or blow it up. Now that's a mind blowing statement to say to, to a child at four years old, but it stuck with me and I never forgot that message from my mother. So it wasn't really disparaged, but there were times when I got into trouble because I was wiser or wise beyond my years. Many times I was often referred to as the child who was 11 going on 30 (laughs) Um, because of the conversations that I could have with grown people. And again, this was kind of something that my mom had to kind of guide me through and look out for me because I could appear more mature than I actually was, like in terms of my age. So number two, what messages did I receive about my capabilities and talents? Number one, I could save the world or blow it up. Number two, sometimes I was too smart for my own good. Number three, sometimes I was honest to a fault. Meaning if I saw something and I perceived it about you, I would tell you to your face and I didn't really care what you thought about it. (laughs) So again, that was something in my personality that kind of had to be tempered. Sometimes I would say things to adults. It would be the truth. (laughs) But as we know, lots of adults don't appreciate children telling them the truth about themselves. Now, I don't mind because I was that kind of child. But there are a lot of adults that tend to shut young children down 
when they're telling them the truth about themselves that needs to be corrected. Me, if a child tells me the truth about myself, I say, you know, you know what? You're actually right. I apologize. Thank you for seeing that. And thank you for telling me so that I can adjust and make a change. Now that shocks children sometimes, but they respect the fact that an adult is not brushing off them being able to see the truth. And I do that because I don't ever want to um, be be the adult in a child's life that makes them dull their ability to perceive and discern. So if they see it as an adult, I don't need to act like they don't see what they see. I just need to acknowledge that, yes, that is true. However, (laughs) I would appreciate if you wouldn't tell me that in front of everybody. Let's put me over to the side and let's have a conversation, something like that. But I don't want to stop them from sharing the truth. Sometimes the timing, the tone, the place, those kind of things you can adjust, but you really shouldn't stop children from sharing the truth. Number three, what messages did you receive about whether it was admirable or unseemly to be smart? It was always in my household, in my family, it's always been a thing to be admirable or it's always been an admirable thing to be smart. If you received mixed messages, what was the bottom line or ultimate message? I didn't really receive mixed messages It was just the fact of, I got to tone it down for where you are in your age group because some adults (laughs) will want to fight you for telling them the truth. So I had to learn that. Given those messages, what do I need to do now to recover my rightful smartness? Right now, I'm trying to grow my smartness, work on my brain, feed my brain the right things, keep my brain active, um, and maintain my memory because I have a really good memory and I want to keep it sharp. So I want, I want to do things and I am doing things every single day to strengthen and increase my memory. All right. You said you could see that pastor Ben, you received mixed messages. All right. So we are done reading chapter one. Um, let's see next week. Yeah. We'll be back on Wednesday of next week here. So next week, we'll be looking at smart work as an oxymoron, smart work as an oxymoron. And that's from Why Smart People Hurt, chapter two. All right, moving into our second book for tonight, What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience and Healing by Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey. We are in chapter one, making sense of the world. If you are coming in right now, Understand that this is episode 25 and we are going to be taking a break and we'll be back on Tuesday on our Facebook page, Black Table Talk. Here we go. More than 130 million babies are born in the world every year. Each arrives into their own unique set of social, economic, and cultural circumstances. Some are welcomed with gratitude and joy cradled in the arms of their ecstatic parents and family. Others are more like me, Oprah says, experiencing rejection from a young mother who dreamed of a different life, a couple crushed by the pressures of poverty, an enraged father perpetuating a cycle of abuse. Yet whether or not they're loved, every current and former newborn, that's you and me, shares one profoundly important trait. 
Despite the myriad of circumstances into which we are born, we come into the world with an innate sense of wholeness. We don't begin our lives by asking, am I enough? Am I worthy? Am I deserving or lovable? Not one baby in the earliest moments of awareness asks, do I matter? Their world is a place of wonder, but with their very first breaths, these tiny human beings begin trying to make sense of their surroundings. Who will nurture and care for them? What will bring comfort? And for so many little ones, life begins to take its toll with violent eruptions by the caregiver or simply the lack of a soothing voice or a gentle touch. In our first encounters, our human experiences diverge. The most pervasive feeling I remember from my own childhood is loneliness. My mother and father were together only once, underneath an old oak tree, not far from the house where my mother, Vernita, was raised in Kosciusko, Mississippi. My father, Vernon, used to tell me I would never have been born if he hadn't been curious about what was underneath my mother's pink poodle skirt. Nine months after that singular encounter, I arrived. From the moment I could make sense of it, I knew I was unwanted. My father didn't even know about me until my mother sent him a birth announcement and asked for money to buy baby clothes. Now, I find this very, very interesting that that Oprah is sharing this story um, because I was kind of born under similar circumstances. Um, My parents never married. And I was the result of their encounter with each other. I was the only child that came out of that encounter. And there was a question about my paternity. (laughs) Quite a a few questions about my paternity. Um, My mom was older than my father. And he was supposed to go off to school. He had, you know, plans to go to college and play basketball and here comes little Miss Shantae. That's a whole other story in and of itself. I have to put that in my memoir. But let's just say there was lots of controversy surrounding my birth. So I often say I was, I was born out of controversy. I was born in controversy. And so I'm not a stranger to controversy. <laughs> Even my early years, I could hear about the controversy from my other family members, especially on my father's side. And so as I came out, I think the first time that my father was allowed to see me, I think I was two years old, somewhere around there. And I looked like my dad quite a bit. And so it was not, it was kind of one of those things like you can deny paternity, but she looks just like you. (laughs) So eventually my father did claim um, paternity, uh, but initially he didn't. And because of that, my mother got angry. Yeah. Um, And so she never really got over that that he did not want to, you know, claim paternity. So it became a bone of contention for many, many years. Kind of keep reading. Back to Oprah. My grandmother Hattie Mae's home was a place where children were seen and not heard. Just put an emoji, just put a little raise your hand emoji up there if you grew up in one of those houses. Children were to be seen and not heard. 
I have distinct memories of my grandfather shooing me away with his cane, yet no memory of him speaking directly to me. After my grandmother passed away, I was shuttled between my mother, who had moved to Milwaukee, and my father in Nashville. Because I didn't know either one, I struggled to develop strong roots or connections with my parents. My mother worked as a maid for $50 a week in Fox Point on the North Shore of Milwaukee, doing what she could to care for three young children. There was no time for nurturing. I was always trying not to bother her or worry her. My mother felt distant, cold to the needs of this little girl. All of the energy went to keeping her head above water, surviving. I always felt like a burden with an extra mouth to feed. I rarely remember feeling loved. From as early as I can remember, I knew I was on my own. What I've learned from talking to so many victims of traumatic events, abuse, or neglect is that after absorbing these painful experiences, the child begins to ache. A deep longing to feel needed, validated, and valued begins to take hold. As these children grow, they lack the ability to set a standard for what they deserve. There are millions of people in the world who don't know how to set a standard for what they deserve in life because they never felt wanted, approved, accepted, beloved, or in a place of belonging. Those are my words, by the way. Yeah. And if that lack is not addressed, what often follows is a complicated, frustrating pattern of self-sabotage, violence, promiscuity, or addiction, and sometimes all four. This is where the work begins. The work to excavate the roots that were put down long before we had the words to articulate what was happening to us. Dr. Perry has helped open my eyes to the ways in which powerful, frightening, or isolating sensory experiences that last mere seconds or are endured for years can remain locked deep in the brain. Yet as our brains develop, constantly absorbing new experiences while continuing to make sense of the world around us, every moment builds upon all the moments that came before. I've always felt the truth of the saying that the acorn contains the oak. And through my work with Dr. Perry, I know this to be true too. If we want to understand the oak, it's back to the acorn we must go. This is Dr. Bruce Perry's writing. Early in our relationship, I remember Oprah saying, you're the guy who sees everything through the lens of the brain. Do you think about the brain all the time? The short answer is almost. I think about the brain a lot. I was trained as a neuroscientist and have been studying the brain and stress response systems since I was in college. I'm also a psychiatrist, a field I pursued after my training in the neurosciences. I found that a brain aware perspective helps me when I'm trying to understand people. Being a child psychiatrist, I'm often asked about troubling behaviors. Why is the child acting like a baby? Can't he act his age? How could a mother stand by and watch her boyfriend beat a child? Why would someone ever abuse a child? What is wrong with that child? What is wrong with that mother or that boyfriend? 
Over the years, I've found that seemingly senseless behavior makes sense once you look at what is behind it. And since the brain is the part of us that allows us to think, feel, act, and whenever I'm trying to understand someone, I wonder about that person's brain. Why did they do that? What would make them act that way? Something happened that influenced how their brain works. The first time I was able to use this neuroscience lens to understand behavior, I was a young psychiatrist still training. I was working with an elderly man, Mike Roseman, a smart, funny, and kind man. He was a veteran of the Korean War and had seen lots of combat. He had classic PTSD, which we'll talk about later. He suffered with anxiety, sleep difficulties, depression, and an episodic flashbacks in which he literally felt as if he was in combat. He had resorted to self-medicating with alcohol and struggled with binge drinking. This, of course, contributed to work and family conflicts and ultimately led to divorce and forced retirement. We had been working together for about a year and Mike had been doing pretty well managing his drinking, but his other symptoms persisted. One day he called very upset. Doc, can I come in and see you today? It's important. And Sally wants to come. Sally was a retired teacher that Mike had been dating. He talked a lot in his previous sessions about not wanting to blow this one. Sensing the urgency, I agreed. Later that afternoon, they came into my office and sat next to each other on the couch. They were holding hands. Sally gently whispered in his ear. Mike looked shamed and it was clear she was trying to reassure him. They looked like nervous teenagers. He started. Can you explain PTSD to her? You know, why I'm all messed up? What's wrong with me? Korea was over 30 years ago. I felt myself floundering as Sally moved to hold him. Could I really explain PTSD? So I stalled. If I may ask, why now? Did something happen? Well, Mike started. We were going out last night, had a nice dinner, and we were walking downtown on our way to the movies. And suddenly I was in the street between parked cars on my belly with my hands over my head terrified. I thought we were being shot at. I was pretty confused, I guess. At some point, I realized that a motorcycle had backfired, sounded like gunfire. The knees on my suit were torn, I was sweaty, and my heart was racing. I was so embarrassed, I felt like I was jumping out of my skin. I just wanted to go home and get drunk. Sally said, one minute we were arm in arm, the next he is back in a foxhole in Korea screaming. I tried to get down and help him, but he just pushed me away. He hit me. She paused. It seemed like it lasted for 10 minutes, but I think it was only a couple of minutes. Tell me how to help him. She turned to look at Mike. I'm not giving up on you. Tell her what's wrong with me, he pleaded. This was 1985. Research on PTSD was still very preliminary, and I was a 29-year-old inexperienced psychiatrist in training. I didn't know squat. Listen, I don't know if I have any answers here, but I do know that Mike was not trying to hurt you. I know that. She looked at me like I was an idiot, the idiot I actually was. But while I didn't know much about the clinical work, I did know a lot about the brain, memory, and the stress response. I thought about Mike jumping for cover in the street, not as a clinician, but as a neuroscientist. What was going on in his brain when that motorcycle backfired? I started to look at a clinical problem through the lens of the brain. 
I think part of the problem is that many years ago in Korea, Mike's brain adapted to continuous threat. His body and brain became oversensitive and overreactive to any threat-related signals from the world. Back then, to stay alive, his brain made a connection, basically a specialized form of memory between the sounds of gunfire and shelling and the need to activate an extreme survival response. Does that make sense? She nodded. He is jumpy. Mike, I've seen you flinch and startle in my office many times when a door slams or a cart rattles too loud in the hallway. You're always scanning the room too. Any little shift in activity, sound, light draws your attention. If you didn't keep your head down, Mike said, you were dead. Or if you weren't vigilant at night, you were dead. If you fell asleep, you were dead. He stared into space, unblinking. After a moment of silence, he sighed. I hate 4th of July and New Year's. The fireworks make me jump out of my skin. Even if I know there will be fireworks, I still jump. My heart feels like it will burst out of my chest. I hate it. I can't sleep for a week after that. Right. So that original adaptive and protective memory is still there. It hasn't gone away. Now he's talking about Mike in terms of PTSD with war, but the same is true if you grew up in the hood. (laughs) It took me a very long time to stop running or ducking if I heard the sound of something that sounded like gunfire. Why? Because you hear gunfire, you duck and you haul tail. Yeah, same kinds of reactions. You hear sirens in the hood, you run. You haven't done anything. But if somebody says popo or five-o, you run. <laughs> you don't ever want to be on the street when the cop car rolls down the street and slows down. Because more than likely in the hood, you're probably going to be stopped, frisked, or some other foolishness going down. I'm talking about when I grew up. So if we saw a cop car, we weren't doing anything wrong. We just ran because we didn't want to be anywhere near it. We didn't want to see them and we didn't want them to see us, period, point blank. Similar kinds of responses. He says... but he doesn't need it anymore Sally said this protective memory is actually making his life miserable can't he just unlearn it that is a great question the tricky part is that not all of these combat related memories are in parts of the brain that Mike can consciously control let me try to explain this a bit I pulled out a piece of paper and drew an upside down triangle and three lines dividing it into four parts. It was the first time I'd represented the brain that way. 35 years later, we still use this basic model to help teach about the brain stress and trauma. Let's look at the basic organization of the brain. It's like a four layer cake. At the top is the cortex, the most uniquely human part of our brain. I started labeling my drawing with different brain mediated functions as in the illustration, which I'm going to show you all. As I did, I explained, 
The systems at the top are responsible for speech and language thinking planning. Our values and beliefs are stored in the cortex. And very important for you, this is the part of the brain that can tell time. When the cortex is online and active, we can think about the past and look forward to the future. We know which things are in our past and which things are in our present. Now, if you look at the bottom of the brain, that's your brain stem. This part of the brain controls less complex, mostly regulatory functions like your body temperature regulation, breathing, your heart rate, and so forth. But there are no networks in the bottom part that think or tell time. Sometimes we refer to this part of the brain as the reptilian brain. So think of what a lizard can do. They don't plan much or think. They mostly live in the moment and react. But we humans, thanks to the top part of our brain, the cortex, we can invent, we can create, we can plan, and we can tell time. I looked at them to make sure they were tracking with me before continuing. Input from all of our senses, vision, hearing, touch, smell, first comes into our brain in the lower area or the brain stem. None of our sensory input goes directly to the cortex. Everything first connects to the lower parts of the brain. Once the signal comes into the brain stem, it is processed. Basically, the incoming signal is matched against previously stored experiences. In this case, the matching process connected the motorcycle backfire with gunfire. Remember the combat-related memory? And since your brainstem cannot tell time or know that many years have passed, it activates the stress response and you have a full-blown threat response to it. You feel and act as if you are under attack. Your brainstem can't say, hey, don't get so stirred up. Korea was 30 years ago. That sound was simply a motorcycle backfiring. I watched this sink in. Now, when the signal finally gets up to the cortex, the cortex can figure out what's really going on. But one of the first things that happens when you activate the stress response is that systems in the higher parts of the brain, including our ability to tell time, get shut down. So the information about the motorcycle backfire did ultimately get to your cortex, but it took time. And until it did, you were back in Korea and then confused. It took you all night to calm down, right? He looked exhausted, but relieved. I didn't sleep at all. So I'm not crazy? No, your brain is doing exactly what you would expect it to do considering what you lived through. But that was once adaptive has now become maladaptive. What kept you alive in Korea is killing you back home. We have to figure out how to help your stress response systems become less reactive and super sensitive. That of course is not the end of Mike's story, but the understanding of what was underneath his confusing behavior was very comforting for him and Sally. For me, it started a much more active process of integrating principles from neuroscience into my clinical practice. 
It illuminated how evocative cues, any sensory input like sight, sound, smell, taste, or touch can activate a traumatic memory. In Mike's case, the motorcycle backfire evoked the complex memory of his combat experience. And it was one of the first examples I shared with Oprah when we began to discuss trauma. All right. So we have read that first story to kind of jumpstart this conversation on trauma. And I want to show you the chart that he now uses to help people understand the parts of the brain. I often talk about the limbic part of the brain or the second brain that communicates with your gut. And if you have that, your gut under control, your um, health with your gut under control, it will help you operate that limbic part of your brain better. So as you can see for the cortex, it's where our creativity, thinking, language, values, time, and hope lies. The limbic system is where reward, memory, bonding, and emotions lie. And uh, we'll be tackling the limbic brain in my next workshop on November 6th. You can um, register for that workshop. I'll make sure I um, give you the uh, link for for, us registration, which is coming up soon. And the encephalon is your arousal, sleep, appetite, and movement part of your brain. And then, as they said, the brainstem, people often call it the reptilian part of the brain, is temperature, respiration, and cardiac. Your heart, your breathing, and your body regulation. All right. So let's have some conversation. We have just uh, finished up both of our readings. If you would like to join to talk about what we talked about tonight in terms of anti-intellectualism. And also we just covered a section on trauma and talking about the parts of the brain that get activated during trauma or traumatic events. If you want to share, you can add yourself using the camera. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, I want to deal with this intellectual thing. Because uh, in my household, you know, I grew up in the day, in the hood. <laughs> and uh, it was your mistake. Listen, you better bring home the grades. Okay. There was no reward for bringing home an A because you were supposed to.
Okay, because I think I picked that up from her. So, um, I, I'm, it's so much so that my senior year in high school, I didn't even bring my, matter of fact, my junior senior year in high school, I didn't even bring books home. Mm. Whatever I didn't do in school didn't get done, but I made A's. See, I had the, I was not a, I made some A's, but I was more of a B, I was more of a B student because as I, as I get older, I can look back and see what some of my learning, what areas or how I learned and realize that my teachers never really addressed how I learned because I was more visual and tactile and kinesthetic. So if I see it and I get my hands on it, I would do well. Um, and then later in life, I discovered that I had dyscalculia, which is a um, the mathematical form of dyslexia. A lot of people, when they think about dyslexia, they don't think about the fact that there's an actual math side. So even though I would calculate things, I would write it down wrong. Like I would flip numbers. So, and then I'd be like, I know I knew the answer, but why did I, you know, why did I get it wrong? But again, I didn't discover this until adulthood, right? So with those things, I'm very thankful that I had a parent that was, was more understanding because she was like, I know based on what I know about you, I know what your intelligence level is. So if you're not doing well in a class, if you're doing your best and you still get a C, my mom was like, okay with that. But it it had to be me making the effort for the class. Like she could tell when I was just skirting by versus when I was really, really applying myself to a course. And then the other piece was if I wrote, if I write things down, I got it. So I'm always taking notes. Um, and then the other piece is ha- I have a photographic memory. So those two things, writing things down and my photographic memory really helped me when I got to college because a lot of college was lecture, you know, but yeah. Well, th- those are the things that helped me also because even when, as I got older, when it came to songs, you know, singing in groups and choirs and stuff, once I wrote the words down, Mm-hmm. I didn't have to look at the paper. Just me writing them down, you know, and seeing them as I wrote them down, they stuck. So, and and another thing in math, I remember math was my favorite subject, by the way, in high school. So, uh, I remember I was on I was on the wrestling team. We were had a meet that day, and we were going to leave to go to another place. And my math teacher just happened to be the golf coach. So he took, we had a test that day. He said, well, listen, uh, come here. They made arrangements for somebody else to pick up my, my outfit for, you know, my uniform for, for, the rest, for wrestling. And he, he made arrangements with my coach, with my wrestling coach, that I would come in, take the test, and then go meet them at the gym. I had 10 minutes. Took a 50-question test, 50-problem test, in 10 minutes. Missed one. So when I came back to school, he let the students know, well, listen, he took this whole test in 10 minutes. He missed one. So I'm going to give him a chance to write that out and to get it right. He said, I'm going to give him a chance because he did it in 10 minutes, you know. So I, I wrote work that I came up with the right answer. He said, you get 100. I had a 90. He said, you get 100. You know, now some of them didn't like it, but 
you had the whole class mm-hmm. to work things out. And you got stuff wrong. He did it in 10 minutes. You know, he was under stress, pressure. He's trying to hurry up and get it done. So he, he likely, and he, we, he did make a mistake. So, you know, we got, I'm, he let him know. I'm giving it to him. He get it right, I'm giving it to him. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, but, but um, my family, as far as, you know, the intellectual level, when I was younger, they didn't have a problem with it. Now they don't. That <laughs> I'm grown, they got a problem with it. <laughs> because this is a problem. Most of them have degrees. I don't. But for me to know stuff that I know, because number one, my older sister, she, she taught me from the time I was about 12 years old. If you hear a word and don't know the meaning of it, look it up. Mm-hmm. She told me that. So that's what I started doing from then on and even now. If and, I hear a word, I don't know it, I look it up. And, and the so re- that's why... I was going to say, and the reality is... Just because you have a degree doesn't make you a lifelong learner. Exactly. Because exactly. I know plenty of people who don't have a They didn't go to college, but that mm-hmm. doesn't negate the fact that they have a natural intelligence either. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. And so sometimes people can be very classist and elitist when it comes to degreed education, which I, mm-hmm. that's a pet peeve of mine. Um, looking down on someone because they don't have a degree. If you have a degree and you earned it, wonderful. Nothing against that. I have a degree myself um, in certifications and all that. But if you don't have, if that person doesn't have a degree, don't look down on them because they don't have a formal education. There are people who went through college and somebody else took all their classes for them and sat through their tests and they still don't know anything. (laughs) So, you know, I I kind of pause when I see people having this elitist attitude when it comes to um, college education. You want to say something else, uh, Pastor Ben? We do Uh, have uh, another person that's coming in. uh, Okay, well, well, um, you know, the thing is, is that, that, you know, like the education, give me one minute. The education thing, you know, is good. Some people need that. I am one that pretty much things came natural to me. I'm that person I can look at something, see how it operates, and do it. Mm-hmm. See, the, what I, what I, the type of work I do, I didn't learn it. The basic of it, I didn't learn it from anyone. I just saw it, was able to do it. Now, some of the things I do were fine-tuned mm-hmm. by people that actually operated in those fields. Mm-hmm. See, so I, I, I opened up a set of blueprints, knew how to read them. Yep. You know, so, so, you know, but, you know, that's the way, that's the way that operates sometimes, you know, so, um, you know, it's not, it's not always a degree that gets you, that gets you places. Sometimes it's how you operate, what you know, how quick you catch on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Apprenticing, learning on the job as you go. Um, a lot of entry level positions now are are willing to train you. So that's another thing to consider. Thank you for sharing your input tonight. I appreciate you. You're welcome. All right. Take care. You too. Um, let's see. I think you gotta I think you have to um sign out. It's not, it's not letting me take you out, I don't 
think. Let me see. Oh, there we go. All right. All right, Fred Christian. Fred, we are at, we are um, asking some questions here. So when you come in, um, be ready to answer some questions. We're having a conversation about intellect and anti-intellectualism. And it should be adding you on. Yes. Good Hello. evening. Well, How are you? Good. Uh, have so we met before somewhere? We, we have not. Okay. Not okay. to my knowledge. <laughs> so, okay. was, so okay. Fred, we are having a conversation about this book here called Why Smart People Hurt. And the questions that we are talking about is um, your family's feelings about intellectualism and academics growing up. And one of the questions was, was your being smart ever disparaged as you were growing up? Or what messages did you hear about your own capabilities and talents as you were growing up? Thank you so much for this today. Thank you so much. I was um, an LD child. I'm a child of two disabled parents. My dad had cerebral palsy. My mom was an epileptic. And they both had stigmas for under disabilities. Because back in the day, you could not be seen in public with certain disabilities. My dad was able to walk and function. And did over. He was an overachiever. Still is. And my mom too. And basically they pushed me. They didn't want me being stuck in a service job with no ends. They said, our child is going to go to college. I had was diagnosed, like you said, with LD in first grade. I had dyslexia. I couldn't spell my B's and D's right. I had a severe math problem all the way through college. But I finished, like I said, on July there with a 3.2 GPA awesome. for my BA communications and my AA one, I got a 3.5. I made the dean's list quite a few times, even in high school. I was 1A in high school because I couldn't quite grasp economics. I got a C or a B in it. 1A with a 4.0. Never ran the table, got a 4.0. A perfect one. I had like, you know, many semesters where you take two classes, you can get it by me. A full 12, 14, 18 hour book. <laughs> Didn't quite get it, but I worked hard. Unfortunately for me, the education didn't quite pay off until now because I had a tracking disorder, which I didn't know I had, which they didn't diagnose back in the day, which and I also had a problem with um, reaction time, gotcha. which, played, which means I couldn't drive a car, which affects your ability to get a job, mm-hmm. even on public transportation. Yeah. So I had to settle for a friend to get me in public, so my dad needed care, so I left that job, ended up going on disability, and I had health care. Only thing that fortunate came to me was I became a full-time activist. I don't get paid for what I do, but I love what I do, and I'm a minister. But in healthcare, I decided to fight for it for others, and I'm still doing that. And fun violence and several other things, but education plays a real role. And my parents supported me in it. They still do. My whole family did. They wanted me to be smart. They wanted me to do better. The idea is you want to do better with your children. You don't want your children being worse than you. You want them to do better. And yeah. that's the thing. You know, as an activist and advocate, I want to make sure kids don't fall through the cracks like I did. I don't want them sitting there saying, why can't I drive? Why can't I succeed? Mm-hmm. We've got to put them in place, whether black, brown, Latino, white, whoever they are, especially our poorest and most vulnerable and disabled. We've got to put them in a place to succeed. Yes. That's a that's an amazing um, testament. Um, give me one moment because I'm going to close down our podcast. 
Um, before I respond, this has been another episode of Daring Dialogues, and I've been your host tonight, Shantae Charles. I want to thank you for your time and attention. Again, this is our um, episode 25. We will be back on next Tuesday um, after we resume from our break. Thank you for your time and attention. Take care.